When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi there, folks. I'm Amy Wright. My guest today is renowned singer-songwriter Amy Ray, a longtime activist as well as co-founder of one of my favorite groups, Indigo Girls. Today, Amy and I chat primarily about the formation of the Indigo Girls, her and Emily Saliers coming up in Georgia and signing to Epic Records, her love of vinyl and its recent resurgence, her passion for activism, her solo career, her recent single featuring the Warren Treaty and Michelle Malone, plus a whole lot more. Thanks again for tuning in to Diddy TV. So you are from Decatur, Georgia. Is that correct? I am. I was born uh, in, at Grady Hospital in downtown Atlanta. So, and then, and then lived in Decatur. And so, um, and now you live, you're in northern Georgia, right? Yeah. I live in a little town called Dahlonega, which is kind of near the little, it's about 20 minutes away from the beginning of the Appalachian Trail. That gives you any idea of how beautiful it is. <laughs> It does. I was just in Chattanooga recently, and we were mm. sort of driving through that that part of the country. It's it's gorgeous there. Um, a lot of people don't realize how pretty the um, Appalachian Mountains are, and then mm. there's little microclimates that you get up in the mountains there. And this is the deep south, but it's only 80 degrees in August. You know. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's beautiful. And how's your family been over the past year? They've been good. I mean, my partner, my spouse Carrie, she's works as a script writer and helps pe- and consultant for people writing their own scripts and director and stuff. So some stuff kind of went dry and some stuff got better. And then for me, I was off the road. So I got to spend a lot of time with our seven-year-old and, you know, that was, that was actually a blessing. You know, I got to just be with her and she did really good at remote schooling. I think she's young enough that it didn't wreck her world as much as it did some of the you know, 10-year-olds I know and older kids and, and college kids that I know, which was, whoa, that was hard for them. But yeah, um, but yeah it's, they're good. You know, we're all very thankful to be back at it and, you know, waiting for a vaccine for her. That's the big, <laughs> you know, that's going to be the big game changer. Then we can go to Disney World, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, I think a lot of parents are waiting for that that kid vaccine. And yeah. I, I think it's going to be soon, hopefully. Cr- fingers crossed. Yeah, cross you know? fingers, right? Right. So let's go back and take a look at where you, where you got started. So you were in Decatur, Georgia. When did you start playing guitar? How young were you? Oh, man, I was, you know, 10 years old, taking lessons at the 
YMCA uh, on Lawrenceville Highway. <laughs> it's not there anymore. But um, I took lessons and I learned how to play like Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley and songs like that. And I was big in my church and we had choir. So I had a great choir director from the time I was very young and, you know, I had my guitar. And so I played mostly like folk songs and kind of like camp, camp town songs, church songs, and then started learning Elton John and Carole King and James Taylor and all the, all the folkies and Bob Dylan. And, and I was, my sister, Laura had a, my older sister, she had a great album collection. So she was five years older than me. So I got turned on to a lot of rock and roll and, you know, Allman Brothers and kind of Southern, Southern stuff. Um, and later on, she turned me on to Elvis Costello and, you know, some of the great songwriters that are more left of center. And, you know, I just, uh, I just kind of loved the guitar because it was mobile and I could just carry it around and play songs with my friends. And, you know, I took piano too, but I didn't practice as much as I should. So I probably didn't take to it the way I took to guitar. I can't tell you how many people I talk to, musicians that say they got their start singing, at least in a church especially if you're from the South, because yeah. <laughs> we, we all go to church a lot, you know, every time the yeah. doors are open or whatever it is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So uh, a lot of singing going on. And um, so were you always singing and playing at the same time? Because, you know, a lot of folks I talked to, they were playing guitar, but they weren't singing. All of a sudden they add in the singing. But was that always a part for you? Well, no one's, no one's ever asked me that. That's so interesting. Um, I, you know, I start, I think probably I started playing guitar so I'd have something to sing to you know, and I'm not like a great guitar player. So I think it, because I was more like, I just need to learn some chords, you know, so I can sing some songs and have some, something to accompany me, you know? So for me, it was like the way to be able to sing and write and, you know, do these songs when I didn't have someone playing piano or, or the camp counselor playing guitar or whatever, you know? And I met Emily when I was, gosh, I think right when I started learning to play guitar, I met Emily, she had moved down from Connecticut and, she played guitar too. So, you know, we weren't really friends yet because we were like a year apart in school, but we, but I definitely took, you know, notice of her playing guitar and always writing little songs and, you know, it was inspiring to me. So it gave me more, even more motivation to, you know, play more and just learn more, you know. So do you remember writing your first song? I used to write these little, um, little songs that were basically, other songs that other people had written, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I was only 10, you know, or 11. So uh, I wrote this song that I was listening to Elton John already and, and other bands like folk singers and stuff too. And I, I can't remember, maybe I was 12 when I wrote this song. It was called Benny the Penny and I, and it was just a ripoff of all these songs that I had heard, you know, it was for like a play, I think that my friends and I were working on. Um, cause we would put on like little musicals and plays in the garage and, or in the basement and write the script and write little songs for it. So that's kind of what I did with my friends, you know, when I was pretty young, like, you know, sixth, sixth grade or, or even younger, I think my fourth, fourth grade class, we did a play, my, the kid, my friends. So that's kind of was, I have some of those old scripts. They were very, um, they were very like elementary, you know, like four pages, same, you know, the dialogue was very uh, simple, <laughs> but, but that's, it was a creativity, you know, it gave me my outlet for just expressing myself. I know. I remember being in high school and I was in a Midsummer Night's Dream and we actually wrote all our own music to the, to the songs that were, you know, Shakespearean songs. Wow. And uh, it was very fun. We had a great 
music director in school. And uh, those are those creative experiences you remember. And it sort of sparked you to do other things. Yeah, that's amazing, actually. That's very uh, high. That's cool. That's very academic. All right. It was very <laughs> academic. And, uh, um, and then we recorded it, actually. You know, very funny story. We recorded it at Sam Phillips Recording Studio here in Memphis because Whoa. the guy that we... Um, that was our music director, you know, um, knew him. So that was actually, I didn't realize it at the time because when you're young, you don't realize what a great thing that was. But <laughs> That's uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Later on, you know, you, you really appreciate all that. But so when did you meet Emily then? You met, you met in uh, like junior high, high school. And when did you start well, playing together? I well, I met, I mean, we met in elementary school, but we weren't friends. So I think I was 10, maybe she was 11. We just kind of said, Hey, it wasn't like a, and our families had kids that were similar ages. So we all went through school together. So in high school, we both ended up in the school like chorus and it was mixed age ages, you know, so that's when we really got to be friends and, and our like little friend groups would hang out together. And, you know, and, and I think I was, it was when I was 15, it was right. I remember I didn't have my driver's license yet. She did. And um, we started playing together and doing like little talent shows and stuff. And then, um, you know, we just kept, I, we had an English teacher, um, Ellis Lloyd was his name, and he was very instrumental in encouraging. She had, you know, Emily had him for advanced placement English, and then I had him, all my siblings had had him, you know, and he was just very encouraging. So we would both, when I, when Emily was in his class, I wasn't in it yet, but he had had my sister. So we would go to his class after school and play guitar, and then he had me for English, and, and Emily was off at college by then for, you know, she went to Tulane for her first year and I went to Vanderbilt in Nashville during her second year in my first year. And then we both transferred back to Emory in Atlanta because either one of us was sort of struggling where we were and we didn't really do it for each other. We, we were playing on the weekends and playing during the summers, but it wasn't like a conversation of like, let's both go to Emory. It was more like we both kind of decided that we needed to, and then it worked out for us. And and that's when we really, I mean, we were playing a lot before that, but I'd say like 83, um, 84 kind of things started really, we started doing more original stuff and, you know, writing songs. Um, I mean, she was writing already, but we started to do uh, the original songs instead of just all cover songs. And we played all the time through college. We played on the Emory campus. We played at a couple of bars. Um, we played at a bar called Good Old Days. We played at a bar in, in the Emory Village called The Dugout and just, you know, basically had like our parents gave permission to play at certain places to the managers, you know, because we were <laughs> underage, you know, it was just like a whole thing. But it was it was our social life, too. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it was really like it was everything that we knew. I mean, we did our studies and all that, but I was really more into I was glad to be going to college, but I was way, I think, more into the music part, you know. But it was, I think having that college campus for us um, was like such a luxury because there were so many resources there, you know, like a copy machine to make posters and <laughs> a bookstore to sell your record at, you know, just, you know, instant crowd because of your dormitory, you know. And so we realized, even at the time, like, this is a great, you know, opportunity. We should like take advantage of the fact that we're on a college campus, you know, and and play our music here, you know? And so we did. And and it really, that's kind of, that crowd, that college crowd stayed with us, you know, after we graduated. And that sort of became 
a focus, um, especially because like our like radio college radio was really big, and after we got signed, REM kind of took us under their wing for a while, and they were big on college radio and in the college sort of world. So that's kind of where the college community and the women's community were like the two sort of cementing communities for us that kind of built our following. But yeah, well, in college, you have that built-in audience, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, and you can try all sorts of new things out on them. But did you know you had something special with your vocals between the two of you? I mean, we, we weren't like, you know, super ambitious, like long view of like, we got to, you know, do this for our whole career. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to play music forever. And I knew that like the harmony was super special and the blend was really great. And, but it wasn't like in the terms of career. It, I think we were so young that you know how it is when you just, when you're that young and you do something and it just feels good. You don't really care about, you know, the practical side of things, like whether it's going to launch your career or not. I mean, my parents were really like, you know, you need to finish college. They were very traditional, you know, and thank, thankfully, because it gave us an opportunity to be in a place that was very nurturing. But um, I think the specialness of it to us was just how great it felt and our friend group, you know, and kind of like we would just all kind of roll around into different places and play and everybody would come to the gigs and we'd hang out afterwards. And, you know, it was a party. It was, it was like our own little sorority, <laughs> I guess, or fraternity, you know, for it was like a fraternity sorority mixture of our own little clan, you know, and, um, and it was great, but I think we just felt that thing with our voices. I mean, I did when I, when she started singing, I was just like, Oh my God, but she was much more advanced in harmony singing than I was. So I was learning as I went, you know, very much like learning as I went and, and had to learn it in certain ways. I used to take old Simon and Garfunkel records that they're recorded in a way where they're split. So if you turn the, if you pan it all the way to the right, you'll hear one person's vocals. And if you pan it to the left, you hear another person's vocals. So I could pick out, you know, either one's part and learn how to sing harmony that way or, you know, and counter melodies and all that. And, and church music, you know, you have so much counter melody in church sure. music. And so that was kind of, you know, the training ground, I guess, in a way. And then Emily sort of was a natural at harmony. So I learned from her as I went. Well, you know, I remember listening to your first album that, that I remember. And what really struck me even back then was the uh, rhythmic just juxtaposition between two completely different vocal lines. It wasn't just harmonies. It was different, different words, different vocals. And that's hard to pull off. That's not really the easiest thing to do. You know, it was <laughs> honestly, it was just something we had learned um, in choir and um and it became a thing that we did. And I think part of it was that I wasn't great at harmony yet, but I could sing melody. And so I would think of the counterpart as a melody and it would be like two melodies together in a way. It was just like a mental exercise. And we would just spend hours working on the timing of like how to make words land in certain places. It was really geeky, you know, and very choral, you know, like high school chorus. And it, but it became the way that we arranged a lot of songs. It kind of became the thing that we used for dynamics and stuff, you know, because I mean, everybody has their thing and that was the thing that we really loved. So we did it a lot. So what was it like to be signed to Epic Records? 
Well, I mean, you know, at first we were, we were very independent and we came out of a kind of a post-punk left of center sort of community where we were playing in these clubs that had been like punk clubs and the bands that were playing there, like driving and crying and some of the early Athens bands and Atlanta bands that were in that REM tribe, they would let us open for them. And we were acoustic and they were, you know, electric, but it was based in songwriting really. And so we kind of went that route instead of the folk club route. And we were really into the do it yourself stuff and just doing everything yourself. So at first when we got signed, I was a little bit, I mean, I, I saw what an opportunity it was because we were working so hard and we were so busy and we had so much to do. You know, we would have a long list of radio stations to call and record stores to deal with. And it just was like, it was like, we either have to hire someone to help us or we got to do this other thing. So this guy that was helping us with legal work, who was our manager now, Russell Carter, um, he kind of got us a record deal. It was, it was a fluke though. It was like, um, we were playing at little five points pub, which was our standard house gig that really, that place really nurtured us. And, um, this guy was in town, Roger Klein, his nickname was snake. He was in town to see, um, I think he was seeing the rave ups and there was also like a signing war for REM for their next record deal. And everybody was tracking him down, you know, and he dropped into the bar. This is like, seriously, like a fairy tale story. Like he dropped by the bar and we were playing <laughs> and then he, got in touch with his boss and his boss came back out to see us. We were opening for Nancy Griffith, um, rest in peace, Nancy, mm -hmm. and um, at a club in Atlanta called Center Stage. And his boss came to see us and we got signed. And I didn't even have time to think about it, you know, but after we signed, I was like, oh my God, was that the right thing to do? And I was kind of depressed because I was like, ah, it's going to take all this control away from us. And, but it didn't work out that, it worked out for us in a much better way than most people. I mean, we came in, at like there was like a portal of time when labels were developing artists and they weren't it, you didn't have to have a hit right away you know you were thought of as a catalog artist that could be on the label for eight records and they weren't like you have to have a hit or we're going to drop you it was very different like now it's so different and we had you know label mates that, like rage against the machine i mean we had like the awesomest label mates you know that were doing like really cool political rock and roll you know and and we were in good company and it felt, um, I don't know, it just felt really good because they were developing all these artists and they were developing us and, and it was like a team of people. And, you know, so it didn't feel like this, like super compromise into the corporate world and, you know, everything's going to be like, they're going to rule everything we do. We really had a lot of volition. And um, I mean, there were certain, there were problems, like they wanted to market us a certain way or we couldn't, you know, we didn't feel comfortable being out right away as gay and, and they would discourage gay press. And, but that kind of changed with, you know, really within two years that all fell apart for them because <laughs> you can't, can't really hide, you know, hide the indigo girls being gay. We're pretty gay, you know, from, from the very beginning. So they kind of stopped trying with that. And we still had records that did, that did well because we had an audience that went with us from the independent days to the label days. And, they were very like our audiences were just like the greatest that you could possibly ask for. Um, it was almost like having a Grateful Dead audience where they would pass around bootlegs and spread the music around and people would come to shows because their sibling gave them a tape or, you know, their aunt or uncle turned them onto it or whatever. And so we just had kind of the, the fairy tale career of like starting in bars, getting signed, 
you know, moving up the ladder slowly. And then REM helped us out and gave us a bunch of opening gigs. And that certainly was, that was probably the key to everything actually. Cause they, that got us on the radio, you know, which it's hard to do. find then, you know, so it made everything work, you know, to have a band like that be so generous to us, you know, and then we were, and then we learned the ropes from them. You know, we, they taught us um, how to pay it forward, how to be nice to your opening bands, <laughs> you know, how to be more environmental on tour, like every, just, they did everything in a really way, great way, politically and, and business wise. So we learned a lot from them and we took our lessons seriously and tried to teach those to other people as well. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of REM, Michael yeah. Stipe, and, and yeah. uh, what a great band to learn from. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> That's I kind mean, of I a fairy tale, too. <laughs> I know how lucky we are. I really do. Even then, Emily and I would be like, pinch us. I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> you know, Michael Stipe, you know, we would be like, we we're so like enamored with him and Peter Buck and just the whole gang, you know, they were so great. So with the label, just to go back to that for a yeah. second, you said it worked out really well for you. What would you say were some of the really cool positive aspects of being on a label that maybe you felt did develop you in certain ways? Well, you know, back then they give you, they give you, you know, a good budget to work in the studio with. And so you didn't feel like you had to make the record in one week. You know, you could spend three weeks on a record and have a good producer and, you know, who, who could help you with songwriting and arranging. And you just, you learn a lot in the studio. So to have that space and time to sort of spread out and learn was total luxury. And then the team of people that like promoted our music that were really close to us, like our publicist and sort of our artist development person, they were very, um, knowledgeable about music and they were big music fans. It wasn't so, you know, I'm like, it was still very money oriented at the top, you know, but the people that were working for labels at the time, I'd say that at least half of them were really into music and we got lucky to get those people in our camp instead of working with people that were just, you know, totally commercial and about hits. I think we got those people because that's what we were doing. We were doing just music for music's sake. So we had like a great publicist who just helped us, I don't know, learn about the way things work and educate us. And, and we already knew a lot cause we've been doing our own thing for so long. So, you know, I knew how record stores and distribution worked and radio and everything. So they respected the knowledge that we had too. like it. That was special, you know, because they respected that we had that knowledge. Now we also learned, you know, about sexism and you know all that stuff too because you do but we learned how to handle ourselves because we would go to a radio station for an interview and get treated a certain way and we kind of learned the ropes in this world where we had people on our side you know we weren't just all alone so that was a benefit and you know we had a lot of resources i mean epic was part of sony at one point and you know we were doing activism like we were working with this activist group and this indigenous group called the Zapatistas down in Southern Mexico. And they were very revolutionary and very um, adept at technology and the internet and stuff um, and getting their word out. You know, and we would do things like get Sony to donate video cameras to them. I mean, like, you know, we would, we used 
any how any way that we could we sort of used the resources that we have with that label and i mean they they knew it you know they did it willingly but but we definitely learned you know just kind of how to make the best of your situation and and use it for the good of your activism but it was still a corporation and you know there's still there's a lot of, of my peers that did things a different way that i have a lot of respect for because they they didn't go the corporate route and they did it themselves the whole time like ani defranco who never compromised you know so we you know we made a compromise in the in the corporate world but in trade for that we got to work with people i believe that were super experienced and a team of people that just had their hearts in the right place you know and when it stopped feeling that way we got off the label i mean there was a point when it turned and you could feel that they weren't into it anymore and people had been fired and the you could feel the labels were just like starting to you know explode and implode and luckily our deal was up so we moved on <laughs> you know but we got we had like the the weird portal of time that everyone covets you know when college radio was big and independent music was big and you know independent media was big and so you had if you were like an independent type band on a major label you had like a lot of resources and and airplay and things that you just well now it's different cuz cuz the digital world gives you access in a different way but it was a very special time of like opportunity i would say it's it's interesting cuz you can almost sort of divide a line pre and post napster you know when there was yeah. that that different whole music industry and world and then after that everything became digital and there was a an adjustment that had to take place in the music business um how you develop artists how you market the music how do you make money in in music all those things that changed in the digital world but you guys were in that beautiful sort of time period when you got started that you were in the artist development where the labels and artists were selling music and albums and all those things um so that's kind of a magical time and then when you make that switch at least you had all that in your you know in your back pocket all that experience if when you have to go independent and you mm -hmm. guys you guys form, formed your own label right yeah we after epic we went to a record label called hollywood for just for like a year two years and that wasn't working out they were they were you know they weren't there wasn't anything i mean they did hook us up with a great producer Mitchell Froome who we love and still are friends with but it just wasn't it already was we just weren't fitting in um we weren't commercial enough really for them um and we didn't want to be so we left and just said let's just do our own thing and made a made our own label and then we basically went to Vanguard and they distribute us and that's kind of still where we're at we have our own imprint but we are distributed by you know a bigger situation which is kind of the best of both worlds you know but it, you know it was it was definitely time to do, we probably should have we probably could have skipped hollywood records and just gone straight to independent but we didn't you know we were very torn and and they were that label was like very much selling the idea of trying to work together because we would try to do maybe some movie soundtracks and that never it never ha happened so we were like okay this is we're just trying we're chasing after this thing that obviously is not for us and we might even be doing it for the wrong reasons you know so let's just step back 
let's do it for our, the music and for ourselves and not think about things that are bigger financially and stuff like that. So I think it was a good lesson for us, actually. I think, you know, we don't, we have no problem learning our lessons as we go. I'll say that, you know, and we've learned a lot of them. So I think that was that moment when we, it was good. It was a good move. And now we're just where we're at, you know, and it's, it's, it's great. We still have a great audience and can make records. And we just, every time we make a record, we basically just get a loan, make the record, pay back the loan, you know, and get distributed by a good label. So it's cool. Well, what do you think about the resurgence of vinyl? I love the resurgence of vinyl. That's vinyl is like, you know, I've never stopped loving vinyl my whole life. I've always had a turntable. I've always had a huge record collection. I've always gone to record stores looking for vinyl, you know, and there was a long time when really you just went to used record stores to get vinyl because major stores weren't carrying it. Right. right. Um, I think vinyl sounds better. You know, I'm a big advocate for it. I, I know it's expensive to make and, and it takes a long time because there's not enough record presses in the world. So we're like the artist goes to get their vinyl made and they're like, uh, it'll be six months before it's done. And you're just like, Oh my God, <laughs> like you have to really plan, you know, way in advance. Um, but I'm a big advocate. I think it sounds better. Um, actually when I was young, I worked at a record pressing place. So I'm way into vinyl <laughs> and I think the resurgence of it is helping artists a lot because it turns people on to music in a, in a different way, like in an album form. Um, and so you've got, you can buy this beautiful record and listen to it on a turntable and hear it in that way. But then you have this great thing too with, you know, Spotify and Apple music and streaming and stuff where you can just check out so many different things. I, you know, I usually like listen to stuff streaming too. And then, and, or I do a high def like streaming place that has like a really great sound. And then if I like something, I buy the vinyl. I mean, that's kind of what I do. And um, I think a lot of people do that. So but it's, it's gave, I mean, what it's done for us is it's given, it's reintroduced the idea of buying music to people too, which is, you know, the thing that wasn't happening for a long time and kind of has hurt a lot of, I think, I mean, I have no, I've always just adjusted as it's gone. And I've always thought, you know, the record, the height of the record industry, when we were, you know, on a label and selling a lot of records, I always felt like they charged too much, you know, and I felt like, you know, you, these labels to me, like they seemed a little bit gluttonous and like charging too much for CDs, the long box, which was kind of waste of materials, um, giving bands these huge record deals. I mean, huge deals that they did not need. And, you know, I, I kept saying to myself, you know, this is going to change. Something's going to happen because this can, this is not sustainable, you know, <laughs> And it did. <laughs> so, and I think, and, you know, and I think labels, they had their day and they had a lot of money and champagne and limousines and, you know, and this is the time period when they're having to adjust to a new revolution. So for me, it's, I look at it that way sometimes. And even though we benefited from that label time, I think we also need to go with the flow, you know, and realize that streaming is really important. And um, it actually, it's harder for indie artists, you know, I think that are, I mean, smaller artists that really they're, they make a record and they have to sell those records to pay it back. So people need to realize that and try to support them somehow, either by buying merch or, um, you know, buying their vinyl or whatever, but, you know, and, but we make a living touring and that's what, that's pretty much what we've always done is our, the, our living is really through touring because we never were like this multi, 
you know, million dollar record selling band, we sold enough, but it wasn't like crazy big, you know, but, um, yeah, so we've adjusted and, and I think vinyl is part of that adjustment and it's exciting because I love vinyl. You know, it really is exciting. And Memphis actually has Memphis record pressing. We have a vinyl yeah. press here and they've been doubling in size. I mean, it's crazy. We were just over there. Uh, it's amazing to see the records coming off the press. It's very cool if you haven't been. But um, so they're, they have more business than ever. And I think it's really kind of interesting because we, we also have a store here at Diddy TV called The Vibe and Dime. And it has, we carry vinyl records and old instruments and all sorts of fun th things like that. But it's all the young people, like 16, 17 years old, and they're coming in and they're buying vinyl. And oh. uh, so, and of course, they're, it's all new to them. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, have you seen this? And, and they talk about it like it's a piece of art, which it is a piece of art. And if you're going to collect something, vinyl is a pretty incredible thing to, to collect, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's big and, and heavy, but it's like, I don't know. I love, I, you know, I worked at a record store in Nashville when I was there for a year. The Great Escape was the name of it. And um, I spent so much money, of my money on vinyl. <laughs> I just love, I, I think it is art. You know, the cover, mm -hmm. um, the liner notes. You know, I'm glad you all have that going on. That's cool. I mean, with selling records and instruments, and that's cool. It is fun. It's an extension of the network, but it's really a fun thing because that's what this is all about. It's all about yeah. live music and supporting independent artists and, you know, all those things that go with it. And so we have a lot of fun with it, but it's also been really great to see all the artists we work with starting to produce all these great vinyl records, which we didn't have in the very beginning. And That's it's cool. just taken off like, like a rocket. And just recently, this is very funny, but um, a friend of mine who I knew in college discovered a box that I had left at her house after college when I was transitioning to move. And she sends it back to me. It was in their barn in the middle of Virginia, <laughs> you know, for like the last 50,000 oh, years. <laughs> and so I get it. And in it has a pair of Levi's jeans that I was wearing at the time um, that are a little tight, let me just say at this point. Uh, but uh, but the in it was uh, 12 albums that I had. And it was like a time capsule of going back and they still played. It That's was amazing. It was amazing. And just, I had forgotten those were the albums I was listening to. And that was kind of the fun part That's of kind neat. of rediscovering it. Yeah, it was very fun. That's really neat. Um, but let's talk a little bit about some of the causes that, that you're involved with, because uh, you are known to, you know, have some very things that are very dear, near and dear to your heart. And you alluded to one of them, the Zapatista uh, and the di indigenous peoples. So what... What are they trying to accomplish? And well, well, the Zapatistas was, I mean, we, we just, we worked with them through our work with um, a group that we started called Honor the Earth. And the Zapatistas at the time in the mid nineties were really creating a whole revolution in Southern Mexico to get, get the indigenous peoples from those areas, the right to sort of have their own land and, you know, the corporations were really taking over the resources in those areas. And so they really, they were a very agrarian communities that really depended on sustainable sort of agriculture and a way of living that 
was really in opposition to the way the corporations were moving in. So they were working on sort of against this sort of neoliberalism, global trade idea that really was hurting indigenous peoples. And it, it worked in conjunction with Honor the Earth, which is a group that we started in the early 90s with a native named uh, Winona Leduc, who is an Ojibwe leader from White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. And we heard her speaking at an Earth Day concert. And we were environmentalists, but we were working more in a mainstream kind of way. Greenpeace, um, Sierra Club, you know, good groups, but not we weren't focused on this indigenous perspective and we heard Winona speak and it was like a light bulb went off and we met with her and we decided to team up and we started honor the earth with a few other native organizations. And it was to be a, a board membership of all native leaders. And we would fund through granting projects that different native organizations were doing that would, you know, we would support sustainable energy projects like solar and wind power. We would fight, bad energy projects like uranium dumps and mining and waste dumps and paper mills that were polluting riverways. And um, so we would work on salmon restoration, you name it. It just ran the gamut, sacred sites, language preservation, you know, all sorts of issues. And every tribe has different issues. And we understood that a lot of people don't know what's going on in Native, in Native America. So we basically were like, this is where we want to do environmental work. So we started this org and we give grants out still every year. And, but we also do project work. So we might fight pipelines um, or we might um, do a campaign that's just about renewable address, just transition from bad energy to good energy and the economics of that providing good jobs, good green jobs. So it, it runs the gamut. Um, we really try to build a bridge between native and non-native communities so that us that are not native can understand what's going on because I guess it's people are more aware of it now because of, I don't know why, but the media has really started to focus more, I think, ever since Standing Rock on what's happening in Native America, you know, which is great. So, um, so that's kind of where, and we still, this is still like the, we do a lot of work in a lot of different areas, but this is, this is our baby, you know, in some ways. And we still, we're on the board even now and we, you know, go to meetings a couple times a year and just do all this, try to just really focus on it. And I'm assuming climate change is a part of that <laughs> uh, yeah. because you can't really get away from the fact that we're, that the climate is changing and it's probably um, hurting the, the environment that these folks, you know, live in and, and that's their life. Right. So um, yeah, I mean, climate change, you know, obviously it affects everybody in mm -hmm. the whole world. Um, but they've, they've been talking about climate change for years, you know, and they're on the front lines of seeing it a lot of times because a lot of people, you know, when you go to a community up in Alaska and um, it's, you know, it's just so obvious, you know, that the glaciers are melting and their way of life is changing and the way the caribou migrate changes and the way, you know, what they have access to changes for what they can eat. And so it's, they're on the front lines often of, of how climate change affects things. Um, as are many people in the world that live subsistence lifestyles or live in, in, in conditions where they don't have all the resources that you have if you're wealthier to sort of mitigate what's happening with climate change. So they, they definitely are on the front lines of the, 
of the negative effects of it. Um, but now everybody is, I mean, fires and floods and everything that's going on, food, you know, resources. So, um, I think it's, it's been a big issue at honor the earth for a long, long time. And it's good to have it be, uh, kind of a mainstream vernacular now and something that people are thinking about more. Um, we've always been working on, you know, trying to find more sustainable ways to have energy, you know, which is the, at the heart of trying to fight climate change. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, I feel like there's been a real shift, societal shift towards paying attention to some of these things. And you started with, you know, with this back in the nineties, but it seems like today that there are more people who are paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people, it was bound to happen because it's in your, <laughs> it's kind of in your face now, you know, and we can see it right before our eyes. And so it's good. And, and I think also just, you know, people that are younger and coming up, they just see things differently, you know, and they see they've been exposed to more of the world at an earlier age and can, can sort of make sense of it all in a different way than we could when we were coming up. And so it occurs to them sooner, I think, and they, they want to work on it, you know, and they want to be involved. And so a lot of these young leaders in these movements are helping, you know, the old folks that have kind of tried to work on it for a long time, feel re-energized and also have hope because it, you see the next generations coming up and you feel like, okay, they really get it. And these are going to be the leaders of tomorrow. So this is, this is great. You know? So I see that I see positive change. I mean, you know, even Biden talks about it and, you know, people that are in, in the administration that you'd never think would even talk about native issues or climate change are talking about it. So it's cool. Well, and I think that the, to your point, the younger generation, they kind of live it. We mm -hmm. were fighting for it and they've just grown up with it. So they accept it as a part of their existence and they live and breathe it. And, you know, that's a result of a lot of work that a lot of people did for a long time. In fact, I was going to get to a couple of more causes that kind of segues into women's rights and gay rights. But I, I feel like those have changed dramatically in the last even 10 years. Yeah. I mean, the trajectory of, of gay rights is, is quite amazing, actually. I mean, you would never have thought, I wouldn't have thought when I was a freshman at Vanderbilt, <laughs> you know, fighting my inner homophobia and dealing with, you know, I had a few friends that were so supportive of me, but I had the majority of my world was just like, you know, shame, you know, and that still goes on obviously with kids that come up in communities that don't have a lot of resources for that or people that still don't agree with it. But, but it's more mainstream now, the, 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 the verbiage and, and just the articulation of what it means to talk about gay rights is it's on TV, you know, it's part of our life. So marriage, you know, gay marriage, I mean, yeah, I would have never thought that would shift. I mean, it's, it's on the shoulders of all the activists that did work, you know, even in the forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies. I mean, there's been work being done for so long on gay rights and it's quite amazing if you read the history and then women's issues. I mean, I think sexism is one of our hardest things, you know, sometimes 
I mean, sexism and homophobia go hand in hand often. So it's, you know, I think racism and sexism are the two things that we just need to keep working on, you know, but I think, you know, at least in the women's movement and I think in through black lives matter and more attention to people of color in general and just younger people coming up that, that don't will not stand for that kind of racism and sexism. I think we're getting somewhere. So we, you know, our age group, you and me, I mean, mm. we have seen it change. So it is, it is great, you know, and you have to count your blessings and your, and your achievements but you still need to work too. So I, I feel like no resting on laurels. We got to, we got to keep going forward, you know, be <laughs> making it better and better. I know we can't, we can't go backwards. I was talking <laughs> to my mom and, you know, she, it was worse for her than it was for me. And, and then I've seen it change even during my, my career and how the attitudes towards women have changed. And it's great, but you can't rest on your laurels because it's easy for it to, go back the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take long. <laughs> no, it's a little bit fresh still in the memory. I don't know. <laughs> we want to keep moving forward. Exactly. Um, well, let's talk about your new music. And so you've had a solo career outside of the Indigo Girls for many, many years, and you continue to put out albums. And I was, I, I know some of your albums and a lot of it is you and slightly different music than you would have done with the Indigo Girls. So what has your solo career meant to you for creatively? Uh, it's just been like uh, super fun. I mean, I had an indie label from like 89 well, until now. And for the, what I did for years was just sign, I signed other bands, a lot of punk rock because I loved punk rock. And so I signed all these other bands and because I was a fan and would put their records out. And then at some point in 2000, I just was like, writing all these songs that didn't work with Indigo Girls that were more in the punk vein. So I just made a record called Stag that was like all my favorite bands collaborating with them, you know, all my favorite indie punk bands. And then, and then I made some rock and roll records with different various people that were kind of punk, kind of rock. And then I just, I sort of started veering into country because I just, I was started writing country songs and I had always grown up on like Southern music and, listened to a lot of field recordings and Alan Lomax and the Carter family and loved Dolly Parton and, you know, certain like traditional Hank Williams, you know, traditional country. And so I don't know, I just started writing songs like that probably because I lived for the last 30 years in a very rural area with a lot of great players, like, like great bluegrass and country players. So I just started making country records and that's kind of what I have now. I have a country band. We've been together about eight years and they all come from different disciplines of music and different bands. And we get together and drive around in my van and play clubs and put a record out every now and then. And it's just, it's, it's like another outlet. I'm, I like collaborating with people and this gives me a chance to collaborate with a different group of people and to go play clubs and, you know, be in the van and just kind of fix, fix my own gear, you know, string my own guitar. It, it makes me feel like I understand what's going on in the Indigo Girls too. You know, it gives it, it contextualizes things for me in a different way. And you recently put out a single, Chuck Will's Widow. And on that single, you had Warren Treaty, correct? And Michelle Malone. And yeah. so why did you bring those guys in? Well, the Warren Treaty is one of my favorite bands. They're, they're out of Nashville, the husband and wife, um, African-American, influenced by a gazillion different kinds of music. Tanya Trotter is like this crazy good singer. I mean, I just, 
I love her. Like, like we do midnight train to Georgia together and she like, she, like she, no one can, I used to be like, no one can sing like Gladys Knight, but she can do it. You know, like she's got this, vo I mean, she's got her own thing, but I mean, like she can make me feel the same way. And then Michael, her husband, he's a, he's a, a an Iraq war veteran. He's um really cool guy, like super sensitive, amazing songwriter, piano player. They're just really dimensional, you know? So I wanted to have them sing on it because I love their spirit and I could kind of hear their voices in my head when I was working on the chorus. And then Michelle Malone is an old friend who has just, she's just a great harmony singer. And I just, I always kind of turn to her, you know, when I need like a harmony and stuff, cause she's just, she's a great singer. She's got a great voice. She's actually a really great songwriter and has her own career. That's amazing. And she's in that, she's run the gamut too. She can do everything from country to like blues, rock and roll, like whatever singer songwriter. And I just wanted them on the song. I don't know. I just, when I play music, actually Emily and I are the same way when we play, we're always thinking like, who can we have play on this song with us? You know, it's for our world has always been about collaborating ever since we were young, starting in Atlanta and little five points or playing in Athens. It was always like, who can sit in with us? Who can we play with? You know, who can we trade gigs with? It's about community for us. So my solo thing is just an extension of that. And, but it's a grittier, you know, sweatier extension of that. <laughs> I'll say. Well, we love the Warren Treaty. I mean, we've had them here at Diddy, and I, I just can't say enough about those guys. Mm. We totally love them, their music. They're incredible. I mean, it's been amazing to see them just, you know, they're taking yeah. off like a rocket. And I'm so glad yeah. that other people are discovering them. And um, so, uh, yeah, we yeah, love we We met them a while back, and um, we had some gigs, and I, it was before the pandem pandemic, obviously. It was a long time ago, and... I, I, somebody turned me, somebody sent me a link, I think to their music. And I was like, Oh my God, I love this. And so we immediately were like, can they go on tour with us? And, and that's what we did. And they're on, actually they're out on the road with us right now. We're playing in Colorado and they're, they're doing our gig tomorrow with us. Well, you can say hi for, to them from Diddy. I will. I yeah, will actually. Yeah. I will. Please say yeah. hi. And uh, you're going to put out an album you said later this year or potentially. Yeah. Yeah. No, we are. I mean, I'm writing for it. I've, I've put out three singles this past year and what we're doing is we just all those remotely like at our own little studios and it was really like fun but not the same as being in the same room so the, my band there's six other members and me seven of us we're going to go to we have a week in nashville and um we're just going to do like five or six more songs and then wait six months for the vinyl to be done and then we'll put it out <laughs> that's basically what we're going to do yeah I'm, I'm excited i mean we get to go to it's fun to make a record in Nashville. You know, it's, it's fun to make a record anywhere, to be honest with you right now. It's like, you just, cause we haven't been in studios in so long that we have this uh, real appreciation now for being able to be in the same room together and make music, you know, truly. So that's, that's what we're excited about. Yeah. Being able to see live music again has just been incredible. So much for the past year and a half and to be able to get back out there and see artists playing live. And you can tell, the excitement, not only in the crowd, but just the artists playing. They're so excited to be back on stage. So that's been really fun. And and you're touring right now with Indigo Girls. Yeah. For I'm the look long. In Colorado and uh, got a few more shows and then we go home and then we go up to the East Coast and do it. I mean, we'll be on the road for a while off and on because we didn't shoot. We're playing gigs right now that we, not these gigs in Colorado, but the ones in the Northeast that we're getting ready to do. They were scheduled 15 months ago before the pandemic. And we just took the 
group of gigs and moved it, you know, over to when it would work. So that's what we're doing. You know, and well, and for those who haven't gotten the album, Look Long is a great album. I was listening to it oh, all of last night. So, uh, so it's really amazing. And, um, and we wish you the best of luck with, with the tour, with the new album. We're so glad that you were able to stop by and talk to us. And if you're ever in Memphis, come by Diddy TV. We'd love to oh, uh, say yeah. hi in person. Oh, I, w I will actually. I definitely will. I mean, I love Memphis. I love some Memphis. It's, it's great. We love playing in Memphis and I love going to Memphis just to hang out. So I'll definitely do that for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Thank you, yeah. Amy. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Amy Ray. To learn more about Ray and what she's up to and to purchase her music, visit amy-ray.com. And remember, you can visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. By the it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.